We've been working through the Gospel of Luke here for quite some time, and here we are in a very, very familiar parable, and yet there is so much in this story. I hope that we'll have the ears to hear this morning. Jesus tells us that there was a father who had two sons, and the younger son was just impatient and didn't want to wait for his inheritance, and he boldly asks his father for it, and the father concedes. And the son goes as far away from home as he can, and while he was a Jewish boy, he found himself living apparently in a non-Jewish world, and while he had money, he had friends. But he burned through his cash in exchange for a good time for a while. But once the money was gone, he had to get a job. And the only one he could find was feeding pigs, which was just about as low as a Jewish boy could go. And finally, he woke up one morning and he remembered his family and how good he had it back home. And so with a change of heart, he comes up with this detailed plan on re-earning favor with dad. And to everyone's surprise, when he gets close to home, his father runs out to meet him. And he doesn't get to give his well-rehearsed speech. His father was over-the-top happy, and he gave him a huge hug, and he's given clean clothes and, a, and the family ring and new sandals, and they celebrated this uh, community-wide with this freshly butchered beef honoring the son's return. And the father made it clear to everyone, my son was dead and is now alive and was lost and is now found. Let me ask, is there a better story in the Bible? This is so good. Well, I've borrowed some thoughts from both Tim Keller and a book that he wrote about Luke 15, and he based his teaching and his truth on some of his mentors before him, and one in particular is, is by Ken Bailey. I mentioned him in a book called uh, Jesus Through the Eyes of the uh, uh, Middle Eastern Eyes, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Last week, Ken Bailey also wrote a couple others particularly related to the cultural context of this message in Luke 15. I'll share a few of those thoughts. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that your word, it's a living word. It is, it is the truth as you have revealed yourself to us in just powerful ways through your revelation of your word and through your son and through your Holy Spirit. May it speak to our hearts this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. We often call this parable what? The parable of the prodigal son, or the lost son. Well, the parable itself actually begins, well, it doesn't even begin there, but well, this particular one does. There are a series of parables here that Jesus tells. But in this one, in verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. 
And I think that's important to bear in mind that while we'll focus on one son this morning in particular, there is more to the story and more than meets the eye. And thank you in the reading we read through both the story of the younger son and the story of the older son. In fact, the significance of the story is not understood until we carefully consider the second son. However, the parable's kind of long, and so we'll do that next week. So come back. There'll be more, okay? Now, Jesus' message about uh, the, the sons here, we say the parable, we could say the parable of the two sons or the two lost sons, and then we often use the word prodigal as equivalent I think, in most of our minds, to lost or to uh, wayward or to someone who wanders. But I want you to hear the definition of prodigal. Prodigal means to be recklessly extravagant, to spend everything, which fits this younger son. But there's still, again, in this multi-layered story, more than that. The son says, give me my share of the estate. What do you think of that request? It was bold, it was brash, and uh, by tradition, the older son would receive double share, the younger son his share. If we can do the simple math and there are only two sons, then he would receive one-third of the estate. But this type of request, in reality, rarely, if ever, happened before the father of the household has died. So let that sink in for just a moment. This request from the younger to his father is totally and utterly disrespectful. It's like saying, die, dad, so I can have what is mine. Well, how do you feel about the son at this point? Are you sympathetic to those people, and maybe you've been one of those, or maybe you are one of those, who fail to follow the rules and like to game the system, and maybe other people, even their own people, for their own selfish advantage? Here's what we're seeing in this younger son. But before we can develop a disdain for this selfish brat, the father does what the kid requests. The Bible says in verse 12, so he divided his property between them. What? It seems to me that a typical father feeling the arrogance of his son and the rejection that he would have felt from his son would be to be angry. In fact, that would have been, one could say, even almost the appropriate response. He would, the father would be tempted to punish, to retaliate, or even in turn disown his son. It's interesting that the text, the Greek, uses the word property. We see the word property, but it's the word bion, or where we get the word bios. It's the word life. The father divided his life. 
While the father's wealth would have been his land and his real estate, which he would have had to sell and apparently convert it to cash in order to give to his son to fulfill this request, I want us to understand and appreciate how the father in so doing would be giving up his position of honor and accept and receive the rejection of his son. What kind of father is this? Well, the son takes the cash and he goes away and all things go well while the money lasts and after the son is the money's gone and the son is in the mud with the pigs. Like so many of us can relate, he comes to his senses. Chapter 15 and 18 through 20 read, I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Go ahead to the next slide, I believe, Jeff. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him. And he kissed him. The boy did not expect to be a son again. He asked to be a hired man. A tradesman who could earn favor again. Repay his father. The text says he comes to his senses, and that certainly is uh, critical. But in the coming to his senses, he thinks that he can pay off his debt and earn his way back to this relationship with his father. And I suppose that everyone in the community, everyone in that town, all of his family would agree that as impossible as that would be, this is the least that he could do to regain any standing for what he has done to the Father. And still, the shock of the parable is again related to the Father because the Father waits with this eager expectancy, giving way to a famous sermon by Helmut Tielecki called The Waiting Father in a wonderful book. Every day on the lookout for the son, and when he sees the boy, the father runs to him. And only the Middle, Middle Eastern fathers do not run. Children run, young men run, maybe women run, but fathers do not pick up their robe, they do not bare their legs and run, but this one does. And he wraps his arms around his wild and wayward and wasteful son. And we might remember Rembrandt's famous return of the prodigal son. 
And as he embraces him, he kisses him. And he shows his emotion for him. What kind of father is this? And the, the son tries to explain to make things right. But the father is the prodigal. The father is reckless in his expensive and extravagant giving to his son. And the father is saying to himself, I'm not waiting for you to explain yourself. I am not waiting for you to pay off your debt. I am not waiting one more minute to take you back. I am going to you and I am going to cover you. I'm going to cover your nakedness. I am going to cover your dirtiness. I am going to cover your filth. And where is the best robe? Of course, the best robe is my robe. So let's get my robe, and I'm going to wrap you in the very best robe. And the son gets the fatted calf, and in a culture that rarely ate meat, let alone beef, this is a rare feast for an incredibly important occasion, and the son, along with that, gets the family ring, and there is a reuniting, there is a reconciliation to the father and to the family and to the community, he, this son, is in again. Now, what's the older son thinking and feeling? He hears the music and the dancing, and the scripture tells us that he's angry. He refuses to go into the biggest celebration his father has ever hosted. He remains outside. Now next week I'll have much more to say about this. And I think in that we will hear something about the gospel and about ourselves that will get our attention. But for today's focus on the younger son, I want to point out another verse. Earlier in the Bible, verse 13, it says, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set out for a distant country. A far country, some translations say. And when we read this story in context, first we would read it in the context of Luke 15. And there are, in fact, just prior to this story of the two sons, there are two other parables that would tell us about things are, that are lost and get to be found. A sheep that was lost, then a coin that was lost, and the whole point is to develop Jesus' point that he makes in 
Luke 15, 1 through 3, and I want us to see this in order to appreciate the entire context of this story of the lost sons. 15, 1 through 3. Go ahead and put that text if you don't mind. There it is. Thank you. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And it was that context that prompted Jesus to tell these parables. That there is a home and a place for the tax collectors and sinners. But more than Luke 15, I want to suggest that this is the story of all of Scripture. Human beings lose their way and God wants them back. The story is the story of the human race. Now this morning, can you see yourself in some ways in this young man? I know that there are times that we desperately long to be home and we believe it to be so far off. There are times when we ache for that powerful place of acceptance where we belong, where we fit, where we are well-suited, where we can be our true selves and our becoming selves, and not finding it at home or even in our faith, we go off to a far country. I bet most of us in some ways are like that younger brother. We're exiles and we're wanderers and we're longing for home, but we're so often clueless in our search. What is it that we even want? What did he want? What do we need? What did he need? And always on the move, but failing to find it, we roam the earth, we travel the nations, we adventure into space, we scroll through Netflix, we are as rebellious as the younger brother and sometimes every bit as offensive in our disdain for what the Father has given us. Reckless and wasteful and hungry, we fill ourselves with pods. Not substance, not something meaningful or enriching that can feed us, that can sustain our life and our soul and our relationship. We fill ourselves with pods. And it seems like at times that no near home 
and no far home can satisfy this desire that's within. No actual childhood home, in fact, or a home that you bought or a home that you built or a family that you formed can satisfy. I'll bet some of you college students are thinking about Thanksgiving. Maybe some of you will even get to go home or you get to go home for Christmas. And, and I know it's going to be good, but sometimes in that, we anticipate this going home in a way that it cannot quite deliver. In fact, no city, no school, no friends, no church can ever quite meet this deepest yearning for home. For the simple reason that our true need supersedes this world. It's the reason C.S. Lewis in his book The Weight of Glory says it this way. Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we feel cut off to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fantasy but the truest index of our real situation. How can home so drive us like younger brothers and yet be so elusive? Of course, from the opening of the Bible, we realize that we belong at home as we read about the garden and God in the garden and God with his children in the garden and God with his creation and his children in the garden. And he is there for us and we are to be there for him. And our sin, our wanderings, our desires, our resistance, our rebellion, our love for other things more than God, all of these things create barriers from coming home. And then the Father God, as we've already shared in our supper today, in Jesus Christ, leaves his home to come to us. Think about it. He too, Jesus, leaves the Father in heaven for the far country to dwell among us much like the younger son did among the pigs. 
Jesus himself finds himself homeless and forsaken by the Father while on the cross. And yet ending the homelessness of our heart, providing our homecoming. Salvation. The banquet celebration. Church, the message for the human race and the message for each one of us is to find our home again in the warm embrace of the Father and the extravagant celebration He's prepared. Only the prodigal, reckless creator, Father God, through the reckless, sacrificial love of His Son, Jesus, can ever bring us home. I believe that's a story worth believing. And it's a story worth sharing. So my invitation this morning is like the sun. Will you come home? Don't mess with your speech. You're not going to get it right. You can't earn his favor. Come home. The Father is more than ready for you.